If you're a guest with us, welcome. My name is Joseph Stegall. I'm the lead pastor here at Providence. Uh, and um, we, well, I'll just put it like this. In, this, I guess, 18 years ago, the, the summer of 1999, um, I me and some, some, some teammates of mine at Georgia Tech on the track and cross-country teams, we went out to Gunnison, Colorado for the summer to train at altitude. And so we got jobs at the city market and bagged groceries and, and uh, the ranches and everything out there. Sometimes they're so far away that you had to put their frozen goods with dry ice around them so that they would not melt in the two-hour drive back to uh, back to their ranch. And so we worked there, we did that, and then uh, we trained and trained it out to the city was 7,702 feet. That's the, the, the base of the city. And then we'd go up into the mountains uh, around that. But from there, from kind of that base camp of, of Gunnison, we also made all kinds of excursions around um, the country. So we went north to Yellowstone and Tetons, and then we went kind of west out to Oregon and down the coast to California and across through Nevada and back in. And then later, we went down to the southwest and, and hit um, uh, Mesa Verde National Park. And I think I've told you that story. We got kicked out of there. I won't go into that one today. Uh, and then the Grand Canyon, Zion Canyon, uh, Arches, all these things. So we had this base camp kind of that was Gunnison. And then we took all these excursions from Gunnison. Uh, that's kind of what we're going to do in Scripture today. We're going to make our base, uh, our little base camp is going to be Acts chapter 20. Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. And then from that base camp of Acts chapter 20, we're going to make all kinds of excursions um, throughout the Scripture particularly as it relates to like continuing our series on the church and in particular talking about how the church is to be structured and seeking to answer that from scripture, not answer that from what did my mama's church do? What did my daddy's church do? But answer what what does the scripture say about how a church is to be structured, how it is to be led? And so we're going to be base camp out of uh, Acts chapter 20 and as we've talked about in seeking to answer that question already, we've been in this series for two weeks now, we've been laying out this kind of summary statement, and it's in your bulletin, it will be every single week, is that when you look at Scripture and you kind of uh, remove yourself from modern tradition, uh, particularly American uh, tradition or colonial, you know, going back three, four hundred years uh, here in North America, remove yourself from that and just kind of, uh, you know, some pragmatism that went along with that is, the frontier was being open and whatnot. And you just look at the scriptures and seek to see how do they describe the church to be structured. What you find is that a church is to be elder led. Deacon served and congregationally governed. And so last week we talked about congregational governance and we talked about what it is and what it's not. We talked about unbiblical, unhealthy, ugly congregationalism and then healthy, pretty, beautiful, biblical congregationalism. And then this morning, we're going to begin kind of the section on the first portion of that summary statement, elder led. And we're going to be doing this for four weeks talking about elder led. And so today we're going to be talking about why, why elders. Next week, we'll talk about, well, okay, well, what do elders do? Okay. And then the next week, we'll talk about how are elders qualified? How are they chosen? What qualifications must someone meet to be an elder? And then the fourth week, November the 20th, we'll be talking about the relationship between elders and the congregation a little bit more, how, how they work together. 
With all that said, let's go to Acts chapter 20. Our base camp's on page 604 in the Bibles around you. We're going to be making some excursions, so if you want to be able to find those places a little faster, grab the paperback around you. I'll call out page numbers. Um, if you're a guest with us and you don't own a Bible, take one of those home with you. It's our gift to you. But let's get going. Why elders? Okay, why elders? Number one, it is the pattern of the New Testament church. Okay, number one, it's the pattern of the New Testament church. And so in Acts chapter 20, what you've got going on is Paul is finishing up his third missionary journey and he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, it's going to go really bad for him. He doesn't know what that's going to look like, but he can just tell. But he knows that the Holy Spirit is compelling him and has called him to return to Jerusalem. So he's on his way back and he stops at a place called Miletus. And in Miletus, he's only about 50 miles from the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus, um, he planted, a, Paul planted a church in Ephesus, pastored it for three years. So now he knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows it's going to go bad for him. He knows ultimately it's probably going to wind up costing his life, which, is, which it ultimately does. He gets beheaded by Nero eventually. But while he's in Miletus, he sends, it's only about 50 miles to Ephesus, so he sends some guys to go get the elders from, from Ephesus so that he can talk with them one last time face to face. He's written letters and will write letters while he's in prison in Rome, but he wants to talk to them face to face, so he sends for the elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came, he said to them, you yourselves know... How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That there's salvation found by no other name but the name of Jesus. He lived a perfect life in the place of our imperfect ones. He died a death that we should die as a substitute for our sin. The penalty we owe, Jesus paid it. And then he rose again three days later, validating the fact that what he said is true, that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He gives salvation to any who will believe, who will repent and believe. So he's, Paul's been testifying to this truth. And now, verse 22, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Listen to this. I pray I I could say this of myself and that we would all get to this place. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So here comes his exhortation to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so what I want to, what I want you to notice from kind of this long text that we just read, particularly as it relates to church leadership, is a couple of key words. And we're going to examine them particularly in the, the, uh, written language of the New Testament, the Greek language. We're going to be talking about some Greek words in particular. And so look at verse 17 again. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Okay, all right. And so right there you've got the word elders. And the Greek version, all right, the Greek word that means elders is presbyteros. That's where we get the word Presbyterian from. Presbyteros. So write that in your notes as close as you can spell it. Presbyteros equals elders. That's what the word is. All right. Go down to verse 28. That's the first word I want you to know. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All right. Overseers is a synonym. He's just using a different word here for elders. It's a synonym. And overseers in the Greek is episkopos. That's where we get the word episcopalian. Episkopos. So in your notes, episkopos equals overseers. And then finally, I want you to look at the, the verb that's used right after that. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Literally, to shepherd the church of God. And some of your translations may even say to shepherd. And the word that's used there is the Greek word poimen. And poimen is translated shepherd or pastor. Normally, just shepherd. Matter of fact, the in the King James Version, the only place where the word pastor is ever even used in Scripture is Ephesians 4.11. In the ESV, it's translated shepherd. So if you look in the ESV, you're never even going to find the word pastor. It's not used. We use it today, just popular. It's kind of become popular, but in the, in the past, it was never used. You always bishop or overseer or elder. All meaning the same thing. And so the whole point that I'm wanting you to see from here in Acts 20 and this is 1A in your notes, is that there are multiple words that all refer to one office. Okay, multiple words, one office. Well, like as you look through uh, the Bible, what you're going to find in the English, you're going to find words like pastor, shepherd, bishop, overseer, uh, elder. All these different terms that all mean one same thing. They're, they're not a bunch of different like positions in the church. They're just a bunch of different words synonyms that all mean the same thing, that all refer to the same office in the church, the office of elder. And so you've got multiple words all referring to one office. And in the Greek, those synonyms are presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. And here in Acts 20, we see them all together. All together. We also find it in 1 Peter chapter 5. I told you I was going to write down the page numbers, but I did not write it down for 1 Peter 5, so you're on your own. 1 Peter chapter 5. All these multiple words grouped together again. I want to show it to you. 
1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter's near the end of the New Testament. It's right after the book of James, right? Yeah. And it's right before the book of 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll actually be examining this text in detail next week as we talk about what do elders do. But I want, you, I want you to see how these multiple words are used here, referring to one office, just synonyms. Here we go. So I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you as a fellow elder, presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, poimen, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And so you've got all those words, those three synonyms, all grouped together there in Ephesians or in First uh, Peter chapter five. And you and you've proven it a third time. First Timothy chapter three, Paul's laying out the qualifications for an overseer. And then in Titus one, he does the exact same thing. But this time he calls it an elder. Same writer, same qualifications using two different terms, multiple words. Referring to one office, the office of elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, shepherd, pick the one you like. They all mean the same thing. But they do kind of highlight different aspects of what this one position entails. And so elder kind of highlights the spiritual maturity of the office. Overseer kind of highlights the leadership and the visionary aspect of the office. And pastor or shepherd kind of highlights the, the feeding and the nurturing and the protecting nature of the office. But again, what I want you to hang on to out of this is that there are multiple words all referring to one office. And so just to show you a little bit more of this and to show you how I said, you know, I said it's, it, it, it is the pattern of the New Testament church. I want to read a bunch of scriptures to you, but I need to explain one thing before we do that, lest you get a little bit confused. There is an office in the church that no longer exists today, and that's the office of Apostle, capital A. Now, Apostle just means sent ones. And so as it relates to you and I, we are all in that sense, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you are an Apostle in the sense of Christ is sending you out. He's commissioning you to be an ambassador for him to take the gospel to others. That's a lowercase a Apostle. But as it relates to an official church office, capital A Apostle, as in Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, Apostle John, that office is no longer exist, existent. It was a very necessary yet temporary office. And so the church was, the visible church was founded, Ephesians 2.20, on the apostles with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. But the, the, the office of Apostle, capital A, was an unbelievably important. These are the guys who hung out with Jesus for three years. Or, or Paul, Jesus appeared to him, knocked him off his donkey and said, you're not going to be a murderous Pharisee anymore. Now you're going to be mine. I'm going to change your name to Paul and you're going to take the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. So these are the guys that were either with Jesus for, these, for three years. These are the guys that wrote the New Testament or were connected uh, and, and someone wrote the New Testament hearing from them. And these are monumentally important guys. The church was... The visible church was built on their foundation, but the office of apostle is capital A doesn't exist anymore. 
And so when you just kind of look at the history of the new church in the book of Acts at the beginning, all you see is apostles, 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 apostles. And as the church begins to get some age on it, you get into, you know, the middle things, chapter 11, verse 30, the first time you ever see it. And you see apostles and elders, apostles and elders, apostles and elders. And then by the time you get to the epistles, it's just elders because they are the apostles knew we're going to die off. How's the church going to be led? Elders. And so let me just show you, you know, the nature of the New Testament church, how this is the pattern of the New Testament church. Let me just show you how frequent it is. So Acts chapter 11, page 598, and then we'll go through the book of Acts, hitting a couple of verses. But if you want to follow on page 598, chapter 11, verse 30, I'm just going to read these. I'm not going to be given context or we'd be here super long. Verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Chapter 15, we're going to see it multiple times. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension uh, and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to, to consider this matter. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Chapter 16, verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Chapter 20 that we just read, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, Verse 21, verse 18 On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. Flip over to Philippians chapter 1, the introduction. Paul says to the Philippian church, Paul, this is chapter 1, verse 1, page 636. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is page 643. Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And he goes through all these qualifications. We'll do that in two weeks. Chapter 4, verse 14 of 1 Timothy. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Titus chapter 1, page 646. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer. So here, Paul just, he said elders, verse five. Now verse seven, he's using the synonym overseer. For an overseer, God's steward must be above reproach. James chapter five, verse 14, page 656. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. First Peter chapter five that we read a little bit earlier. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then there's a couple more verses that aren't explicitly uh, don't say the word elder, but context definitely dictates it. And that'd be in First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you. So there's the you know context here. Over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so taking all of that into account, all right, and that's just a, a survey. That's not, that was not exhaustive. The driving point is, is that the idea of, be, of, of a church being elder-led is the pattern of the New Testament church. And in that pattern, there are multiple words that all refer to the same office. And just as there are multiple words that all refer to the same office, another kind of overriding principle we see in the New Testament as it relates to elders, and this is 1B in your notes, is that there are multiple elders in each local church. Okay, In other words, there to be a plurality of elders in each local church. Multiple elders, one church. And so go back to the base camp of Acts chapter 20. Verse 17, notice the plurality of elders and the singularity of the church. And then we're going to look at some verses that talk about that as well. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. So you got a plurality of elders in one local church. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. We've read all of these. I'm just going to do it again, putting the emphasis so that you can see it this time. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. All right. So there you see it again. Titus chapter one, verse five. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town. And so Paul and his apostolic assistants were planting churches in each town. And there was to be a plurality of elders in each local church in each town. 
1 Timothy 4.14. And do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders, plural, plural all right, um, laid their hands on you. James 5.14, where they're saying, hey, call people from the church, to, elders from the church to come pray for you, says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, again, plural, of the church, singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. First Peter 5, again, so I exhort the elders, plural, among you, and goes on. Hebrews 13, 17, again, obey your leaders, plural, and submit to them, plural, for they, plural, are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them, plural, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And we could keep going, but I know you're tired of that, so we won't. But just drawing some conclusions from even this brief survey of the New Testament, what we see is that in the New Testament, there is no passage that suggests that any church, no matter how small, is to be led by one elder or one pastor. Secondly, we see that a plurality of elders is the only, search the scriptures, is the only form of church leadership that the New Testament describes. Now, I didn't say prescribes, describes. So it doesn't rule out necessarily as these, but it is the only one that the New Testament describes. Nowhere do you find a church on the pages of the New Testament ruled by a majority opinion or by one pastor. And like I said, matter of fact, there's only one place in the whole Bible, even in the King James, where the word pastor is used, and that's Ephesians 4.11. In the ESV, it just translates it shepherd. And so just summarizing here, why elders? Why, why elders? Well, number one, it's the pattern of the New Testament church. And there are multiple words that refer to one office, and there are to be multiple elders in each local church. And so that's number one. Why elders? It's the pattern in the New Testament church. Number two, why elders? It produces a healthier church. It produces a healthier church. To no one, no one possesses all the gifts necessary for leading a congregation. Like I've got a few gifts. I think I know what they are. More important, I know what my weaknesses are. All right? and, and with John, I know his strengths. And I know his weaknesses. And with Chad, I know his strengths. And I know his weaknesses. We each have a little bit of, of both of those. But by having a team of... I mean, already... This church is enormously helped that there's not, it's not just me. If it was just me, we'd be in big trouble. But you've got John and you've got Chad as well already. But if you've got a team of elders, then our deficiencies amongst the three of us are balanced by other elders who complement our weaknesses. And so it provides a, a variety of gifts and perspectives that are absent if it was just me ministering or even if it's just me and, and Chad and John ministering alone. So Ben Merkel, who's a, uh, a professor at Southeastern where I went to um, seminary and, you know, incidentally also has a child who has Down syndrome, wrote this. A plurality of elders also allows each elder to focus on his specific calling and gifting. So this is another benefit. 
A plurality of elders also allows each elder to focus on his specific calling and gifting instead of expending massive amounts of time and energy on areas of the ministry that he's not particularly gifted in. When the elders function as a team, they will be able to complement each other's weaknesses, allowing each elder to devote most of the time to the area of ministry in which he is most gifted. And this idea of team, that's an important thing to know, like the equality of elders. And I want you to pay attention to this. Like in our current structure, if you remember our church, we've got the advisory council and we have the pastors. The advisory council is an administrative committee. And so there's no qualifications for leadership, for character, for theology, any of those things. It's just popular vote. What you nominate in the years past, whoever is just popular vote. And so in our current bylaws, it talks about how we are pastor-led, deconserved, committee-administered, congregationally governed. And so deconserved, congregationally, we're good on that. We're seeking to change the other two. But pastor-led and committee-administered as it relates to the advisory council. And so the advisory council is a committee. And so it has no biblical authority over the pastors. It just serves as a sounding board and helps us make sure that things are running well. An elder board will not be like that. Elders would have every bit of authority that I have, that John has, I called you John, sorry, Chad has, and John has. Equality. They would be qualified on biblical qualifications. We'll talk about in a couple of weeks. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5 even speaks to that a little bit. And they'll have the same authority as a vocational pastor, because that's what they are. They're a pastor, they're just not vocational. And so the elders would have equal value, equal authority, equal position. It is a complete round table in there. Now to be sure, that does not, and I know this is a lot, but I've got to explain these things for you if we're going to vote on this and understand it. That does not eliminate the unique role of a lead pastor or senior pastor, whatever you want to, you know, word you want to use there. There, there is to be one who is equal, but it's kind of the first among equals. You even see that with the disciples. Who is the first? Who is the spokesman? Peter. And what does Peter normally do? This, this is what makes me feel so great about myself. He usually puts his foot in his mouth. That's kind of what he does. And so kind of like that, the disciples, are they're all equal, all on the same ground, but Peter's kind of the first among equals. He's the point person. He's the one who kind of uh, talks, and this is in the same sense with the lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever, first among equals. But, but converting to an elder-led church will make Providence a healthier church. It's the biblical norm. It's the pattern. God honors as we seek to be increasingly biblical stumbling and failing as we might and as we will. And I'm not saying that other churches with a different form are in sin or anything. Again, we're talking about some things that are described versus prescribed. So we we feel like we should try to be in line with the description given here, but this is not a prescription. So I've got great friends that are pastors of a, you know, they're the only pastor in their church, have different models of church leadership and whatnot. I disagree with them, but they're not in sin. I just think they're wrong, but they're not in sin. Does that make sense? So we need this is an open-handed deal. This is not a closed-handed deal. But it will make us a healthier church. 
It will complement the current elders of John and, and, and Chad and myself. It will complement our weaknesses. You will be better cared for. You will be uh, better led. You will be better shepherded. You will be better loved. Not more loved, but better loved. Mark Dever put it like this. It'll, it'll help us as well as your current elders. John and Chad and myself, your current elders. In the little book that we want you to you know, grab, just kind of reflect on and, and, and kind of um, reiterate what we're doing in here. Mark Dever wrote this, probably the single most helpful thing to my pastoral ministry among my church has been the recognition of the other elders, most of whom do not receive a salary from the church. The service of the other elders along with me has had immense benefits. A plurality of elders would aid a church by rounding out the pastor's gifts, making up for some of his defects, supplementing his judgment, and creating support in the congregation for decisions leaving leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. Such plurality also makes leadership more rooted and permanent and allows for mature continuity. For example, if I left, I got contacted by a church in Colorado last year. If I left, there'd be like more continuity because the leadership is rooted in the church, not in just hired folks. I, I said no. It encourages the church to take more responsibility for the spiritual growth of its own members and helps make the church less dependent on its employees. Our own church in Washington has enjoyed these benefits and more because of God's gift to us of elders. And so elders like produce a healthier church. And then one last thing I want to show you, and we'll shut her down for today, and it's not in your notes per se, but one more thing I want you to see out of our little base camp in Acts chapter 20. So flip back over there if you've got your Bible out. If we really mind out Acts chapter 20, we almost could preach next week's sermon of what, what do elders do because you see them guarding the church here against wolves that are trying to get in, against wolves that are already in. So they're guarding the flock. They're guarding themselves. They're admonishing the flock. They're protecting. But we'll do some stuff out of First Peter 5 next week. But for our purposes today of, of why elders, I want you to see one last thing out of verse 28. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so while new elders are to be appointed by current elders and then approved by the congregation, like, like we see uh, Titus doing in Crete, new elders appointing uh, new elders appointed by current elders and approved by the congregation in the background, back behind that in an invisible way. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so Phil Newton writes, and I completely agree with him, I confess that I do not understand all of this working of the Holy Spirit, but I am humbled by the truth that the Holy Spirit, who corporately dwells among the church, that's Ephesians 2.20, works to set men apart for the noble work of eldering. 
And because the Holy Spirit does this work, the church must pay heed to the importance of both its own ministry and its response to the elders' leadership. It's the Holy Spirit that is the foundational authority for elders. And so, why elders? Elders are the pattern of the New Testament church. Elders produce a healthier church. And elders, in a way I cannot fully explain, are set apart by the Holy Spirit. That's why elders. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that, well, I guess we confess also, Father, that too often, you know, things of this nature we're just not interested particularly in. But, Father, it's in your word, and your word is sufficient, and your word is profitable for all things. It's what you tell us in 2 Timothy 3.16, as well as other places. So let us take your word seriously and help us to ever increasingly, as we understand it, be becoming ever more biblical. Help us to also understand those things that are closed-handed and those things that are open-handed. And help us to have humility about that. And just be marked. Be marked by graciousness, by humility, by neighbor love, all driven by the vertical relationship that we who claim your name, who anyone in this room who is a Christian, who claims to be a Christian, driven by that relationship and, and, and the humility that we have because we bring nothing to the table. Jesus paid it all. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.